welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hello there. It is Sally Mercedes. I'm so happy to be here with you today. I'm really excited uh, because I was recently going through all the books that I've read this year, and I noticed that over 50 of them, at the time of this recording, 53, were new releases, which I think might be a record for me. I don't often read that many new releases, but I've had a great time with a lot of them. There have been a few duds, (laughs) but uh, I noticed that I had rated 14 of them five stars, and even more if I had actually looked at the 4.5 stars. To me, the difference between a 4.5 and a 5 is usually pretty small. I wanted to take like my favorite faves and try to whittle it down that list to just five. I really recommend that are more than just me liking them. You know, sometimes you read a book and you're like, I can't imagine anybody else liking this as much as I do. (laughs) So these are books that I've recommended to people and they have also enjoyed them. Instead of summarizing each one, I'm going to focus more on sharing what I loved about it so that if it sounds like something you might be into, you can look up the synopsis and a longer list of content warnings, though I have included some for each book. This is also not ranked by my favorite, but in the order that I've read them. So my first one is Disorientation by Elaine Shay Chow. In full disclosure, I met Elaine at a party once. She's a friend of a friend, but I'm not friends with her. I don't think that that led to my loving this book in any way, especially because other people love this book. But I just, I really love a book that doesn't fit neatly into one single genre. And this is a combination of like literary fiction, but like thriller vibes, but cozy, if that's a thing. Like I know cozy mystery is a thing. Is cozy thriller a thing? I'm not sure but it kind of had that vibe. It's a wild ride. It kind of goes off the rails, which I love. (laughs) And it has interesting discussions of tokenism, especially in academia, and how white culture fetishizes Asian culture and specifically white men fetishize Asian women. I could not put this book down. Uh, Some of the content warnings for this are for racism, cultural appropriation, and what I call like white dudes, white duding. is my very official content warning. I just like knowing sometimes, you know? (laughs) White dude's gonna white dude, and I like going into a book knowing that. The next three are actually romance, which, I mean, romance is my favorite genre, so it's probably not that surprising that three of the books on this list are romance novels, but I didn't even realize that until I had put the list together and started actually, like, preparing my notes for this recording. But we've got Delilah Green Doesn't Care by Ashley Herring Blake, Uh, I love the characters in this book so much. It kind of gives sapphic love story and stars hollow vibes, which is really my vibe. (laughs) Um, So this was a book like perfectly written for me, but it was also a a book that I read with a book club and we all loved it. Uh, I'm not a fan of the curly hair slander in this book, I've got to say, but everything else was great. And the sex scenes in this are fucking phenomenal. A plus. I loved them. They were great. They made me want to date a lady, which I haven't done in a while. In this one, we've got content warnings for grief, death of a parent, and toxic relationships. Next, we've got You Made a a Fool of Death with Your Beauty by Akweke Amezi. I know that some people are just not vibing with this book, but I cannot relate because this is easily my favorite romance novel of this year. 
and like buy a lot. It is so unapologetically messy. There's a really fun love triangle in it. I appreciated the bisexuality rep. I cannot stop recommending it to people. I cannot wait to reread it. I just love a book that's a little all over the place <laughs> with like a slightly unrelatable or unlikable character. I don't know. Is she unlikable? I'm not sure. People have said to me that they don't like her. I loved her. <laughs> but content warnings in this are for grief and death of a partner, but also parent. Lots of death in this and a lot of grief. But I really loved every second of it. Next is The Romantic Agenda by Claire Kahn. This is a really sweet romance novel with a love like polygon. It's kind of a love triangle, kind of a square, like it's two love triangles. I don't know how to define it, but it is heartwarming. It's very fun and funny. I laughed out loud multiple times. Uh, it also features asexual characters who are on different um, like points in the spectrum when it comes to like sexual attraction, sex drive, physical attraction, like all of that, which I found really great and kind of rare, at least for like a mainstream book. Content warnings in this for acephobia, aerophobia, and like panic attacks dis slash disorders slash like anxiety in general. I don't remember, I have to say for the content warnings in this, I don't remember them as much. I had to look them up because I was like, there's nothing, I don't remember anything. It was great, <laughs> but there are some. <laughs> so look them up. They are the ones that I just told you, but there might be more. Then last is The Last Housewife by Ashley Winstead. This is my most recent read on this list, so there may be some recency bias there, but I couldn't not put it on the list just because I read it recently. Uh, it is a dark book with very heavy topics. Definitely read content warnings for this. Uh, some include misogyny, sexual assault and rape, sexual violence, grooming, cults and like cult-like behavior. It, there's a lot definitely look those up you know if you don't mind being spoiled some of them are going to be spoilers obviously but you know do what you got to do to protect yourself this book really worked for me even though it was heavy i've had a tough time lately enjoying thrillers that tackle social issues or feature heavier topics because they're either too realistic like the plot twist is just people are abusive <laughs> and then i get really depressed or they're too outlandish like we're gonna take over the world and like you have to do that right in order for me to like fully buy into the ride. This really rode that line for me very well. Similarly, I don't know that this is going to work for everybody, but I have seen that a lot of people really love this book. So I'm definitely not alone. I'll share my honorable mention. I tried to exclude series from my top five because I have read a few like sequels or prequels this year that I could have easily put in there. But, you know, I don't want to have to pitch like read five books before you get to this one or whatever. But I did want to say that Where the Drowned Girls Go by Seanan McGuire has to get an honorable mention. It was one of the first books I read this year and it really stuck with me and I recently reread it and it's still, I was like, oh, I love this. Because <laughs> time had passed. So I was like, I don't know. Am I just misremembering how much I enjoyed it? No. Upon reread, I think it is my favorite of the Wayward Children series. I love the character so much. I loved being in this kind of different setting. It was just, it just really worked for me. I know some people don't like this one. So maybe out of all of these, my honorable mention is the one that I've seen the least number of people enjoy or like the most people not enjoy <laughs> or just like find it fine. But I loved it. So that's my list. I would love to know what are your favorite new releases so far this year? 
let me know hit me up i'm on instagram twitter the story graph all the places i'm at sally simply i can't wait to hear from you and add some more books to my tbr Hello everyone, my name is Alana Amore Colvin and I am a content contributor with Feminist Book Club. And today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Susan Rogers, who is a cognitive neuroscientist, a Berklee College of Music legend, professor, and icon, multi-platinum record producer, working with artists and bands such as Bare Naked Ladies, David Byrne, and Prince, most notably during his Purple Rain era. And now she's the author of This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music you love says about you co-authored by Ogi Ogas which is out September 20th how are you I'm good how are you Alana thank you for inviting me to talk with your club I am so excited to speak with you and I'm good thank you so much for asking my first question for you is can you just tell the listeners a little bit about your book um I guess to tell about the book I'd probably have to say a couple of words about myself but I've had two careers one was as a record maker for over 22 years and the other was I entered college as a freshman when I was 44 years old and did eight straight years and got a PhD in the broad field of music perception and cognition so this book attempts to tie those two disciplines together. I'm talking about music from the perspective of the listener. Uh, I'm a non-musician myself, although I've worked my whole life with trained musicians. So the book offers a profile of music listening from the perspective of a record maker, which I've been, the perspective of a brain scientist, which I am, and the perspective of a non-musician, which most music lovers are. We don't play or write or sing. The way we have music in our lives is we listen. And my whole adult life, I've been a professional listener. Ah, that's so cool. You talk a little bit, you mentioned it just now, but you talk about it in a book a few separate times about applying for college, not applying for college, but starting your BA at 44. How was that, especially after you had a well-established career already by the time that you had, you know, started your degree in music. I had a hit record with uh, Bare Naked Ladies as a producer in the late 90s. So when you had a hit record back in those days, you'd get a big royalty check. And then six months later, you'd get another one. So with that money, I was financially able to do what a lot of students or young people aren't able to do, which is go to college. It's really expensive. Uh, but I was able to do it. And I would had some doubts you know I hadn't been in a classroom since I was 17 years old I didn't know if I could learn anything I didn't know would the other kids like me I didn't know and it ended up that those four years at the University of Minnesota were some of the best years of my life I loved learning the teachers were happy to have an older student I did well I couldn't have asked for a better experience it really made me appreciate college how great it is to sit in a chair have people spend a few hours giving you something that's pretty wonderful what was it like discovering music or rediscovering music through the lens of cognitive neuroscience good question so when you're in the arts whether you're making music or you're writing books or poetry or stage plays or just whatever what you're aiming to do is take a condensed black hole of what it means to be human, a super condensed dot of what it means to be human and explode that like the Big Bang into millions and billions of different personal expressions of this is what life feels like to me. 
This is my experience. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. This is what I saw and what I did. So in the humanities, we're in an individualistic pursuit. I want to make the music. It's my music. But then in the sciences, you learn it's the same journey, only in the opposite direction. So in the sciences, they want to take all these billions of individual expressions of what it means to be human and see if they can't work their way back toward that center, that center of what it means to be human, which is a collective knowledge. Here's what all of us know. Here's what all of us experience. Here's what all of us see and feel and do. So it was the same journey. It was just in the opposite direction. I found that there's a lot of parallels between the sciences and the humanities. You can walk back and forth between the two of them and look at life from those two different and opposite perspectives, which is very enriching, I think. As a professor at Berkeley, you do mention um, a few times about your teaching experiences at Berkeley. Do you carry this conversation into your classroom often? Yes, um, I was nervous about being a teacher. I didn't know if it was gonna work or not, but I have a friend who said to me, oh, it's easy. You just stand in front of them and they're gonna be looking at you and they're gonna be thinking to themselves, I wanna be where you've been. I want to see the things you've seen. I want to experience what you've experienced. I want to solve the problems that you've solved. I want to have a similar career path. So when you get in the classroom, you discover, yeah, I know that desire. I had it too when I was your age. Let me tell you about what it was like for me and then you with your own personality, your own experiences, your own desires, you're going to take it and make it your own. The conversation just never gets tiresome. Uh, talking about music, what it is, how it serves us, and what we can do for it. Uh, talking with students about that, never boring, never. You mentioned in a book um, the presence of female or femme students in your classes. Now, for listeners who aren't familiar, Dr. Rogers teaches music production, am I correct? Primarily? Mm -hmm. Um, and at Berkeley, and not even at Berkeley, but in the majority of the music industry, there's a big push now to get more female and femme music producers and engineers working and actively participating in the community. And so when you brought up the you noticing um, the female presence in your classes and asking them about the timbre of certain vocal, men vocalists, male vocalists, being aware of that and being aware of that sort of push in community drive, what was it like for you coming up as a female producer and engineer? And what is it like reflecting on that now as a professor? I started in 1978 and I could not have named a single female record producer. I didn't know of any. When I had my record collection at home and I would read the credits on the back, I didn't see any female looking names, but there were two women whose names I could read in the early 80s, around the year 1980. And those two women were Leslie Ann Jones and Peggy McCreary. And just reading their names made me think, they're out there doing what I want to do. If they can do it, I think I can do it. I'm fortunate enough to know both of them today. I worked with Peggy for a long time with Prince because Prince liked hiring women. But uh, I say that to say how important it is to see someone else doing the thing you want to do, or at least know, at least being aware that they're out there doing that thing. That gives you courage. In your teaching experience, have you seen a significant growth of women in production? Or do you feel like it's still... 
Alana, I am sad to say that no, I haven't seen growth, at least not in music production and engineering, maybe in some of the other majors at Berkeley, but we tend to hover around 30 to 40% female and it's 40% female in a good semester. It's been as low as, you know, in the teens or the 20 something percent. Music production and engineering, for those who don't know, is a selective major at a selective college. Not everyone can get into music production and engineering because every student is guaranteed a certain number of hours of studio time and there's only so many hours in a day. So we interview people who want that major. We see fewer women applying for this major. We, we like to accept as many women as we can, but if they don't apply, you can't accept people who don't apply. So I've observed over the decades that um, women are in general less interested in pursuing production or engineering careers compared to men. I don't know if that's due to a preconceived notion that they can't do it or the very real possibility that they're just not interested in it. I'm always open to that. Maybe just not that many women want to do this. I will say that as a guitar principal at Berkeley, the female or femme presence was significantly lower and very noticeable. I don't think I had, I think I was the only girl in every last one of my guitar classes over the course of my entire Berkeley experience. Um, but I did notice that after I won't say after the pandemic, but when we returned back to campus, this spring being one of two semesters that I spent on campus for the entire time, I did notice not, that not only were there more female, femme, and non-binary guitarists, but a lot more guitarists of color who also identified that way. And when I first started, I'm pretty sure there was three or four Black women in the guitar department. And wow. then... By the time, I think I'm still, I think when I graduated in May, I was like one of two or three because we were all pretty much graduated. Not the same field, obviously, but I do think that there is a, not a connotation, but sort of an environment created where we're not, we're almost told to not even consider it, if it makes sense in certain ways, mm -hmm. not to consider that um, guitar may be something that we can achieve or um, production may be something that we can achieve, but also it may be deterring to not see representation there because we're all aware of what it could feel like to be surrounded by a group of very Berkeley uh, men, which is very, very competitive, but in a very weird way. I think it's something that musicians are more familiar with and able to identify, but I do think that that may apply a bit. But I do think what you said about the lack of growth is, is really interesting in itself. Yeah, it's, it's been stable. And I've always wanted to give women the respect and the benefit of the doubt to not assume that they have some sort of inferiority complex when it comes to music production and engineering. I used to get kind of riled up around the table when I'd hear some of my male colleagues say, we've got to encourage women to get in here. We've got to encourage women to apply. We've got to encourage, do you? I mean, maybe they don't, they don't need your encouragement. Maybe that's a little patronizing. And maybe any young woman who decides she wants to be an engineer, maybe I should use the term femme. Maybe that's uh, the more modern term. I don't know. But any femme who decides they want to be an engineer, they know where to get it. And they can, and they do well. And uh, 
I like to think that women who want something have the moxie to go and get it. That's not to say that it's not daunting to be the only femme in a classroom. You talk a lot about how cultural background and gender and cultural understanding can affect your listening down to even like babies crying in their native language or tongue, which I thought was really, really interesting. In that same conversation, you sort of bring up this bell jar map where you discuss sort of the ins and out of popularity in music almost over this, within this conversation of culture and gender and whatnot. You mentioned in the book, Running Up That Hill. Now, with the Stranger Things sort of kicking this song back onto the charts and topping it, a song that came out somewhere around 40 years ago, what was it like? And I also, I just want to point out, there's no pot, like the show aired that episode like a month and a half after I got the arc. So you couldn't have known that this was going to happen. But what was it like watching a song from my mom's generation, Generation X, um, affect my generation? It's a funny thing what music is to each and every one of us. On the one hand, and this is well established, it's a cultural badge or emblem. We listen to the music that we like, to show other people in our culture, in our society, who we are. Many genres of music have a clothing style that goes along with them. So you can look at someone wearing, uh, I don't know, something very conservative and you might guess, I, they probably like this kind of music or someone wearing something else and you say, I, they probably like that kind of music. So with our fashion and with our music taste, we're advertising who we are and what tribe we belong to. But uh, I love how Bob Dylan said that any piece of music is new music if you've never heard it before. If you've never heard it before, it's new for all intents and purposes. So for myself, uh, I've been asked many times, do you listen to current pop music? And I hear it, I've heard it, but I don't bond to it because I have a set of expectations just as everyone has a set of expectations. I know what I'm looking for when I, am searching for music that I like. I'm looking to meet certain expectations that were shaped by culture. New music for me is gonna be music that was made often before I was born and that I love. So there's nothing unusual about the youth of today discovering records that were made before they were born and saying, this suits me, this suits me right now. And it's no different from picking up a, a new fashion trend they used to be popular years ago. I don't know if shoulder pads will ever come back, but there, there are certain styles, you know, long skirts, short skirts, short jackets, long jackets. There are certain styles that get popular again. And there's no reason why, uh, just like no reason why vintage music, just like vintage clothing can't also get popular again. You mentioned in the book a wide range of music, ranging from Baby Shark to King, Gizzard, and the Lizard Wizard to Public Enemy. Um, what was the result of you record pulling for the audience or the readers? Was that more of an academic approach, a perf like an educational approach, or just what is in, what's in your musical library and what you were trying to express and share at the time? Thank you so much for that question, because I relish the opportunity to emphasize an important point for me personally. There was no way I was going to write a book that was trying to tell other people, here's what good music is. Um, I took the assumption from the get-go 
that everyone has their own taste in music and what you like and what I like might be totally different and your taste in music is 100% as valid as my taste in music, which is why in the final chapter of the book, I compare it to romantic love. We don't all get attracted to the same kind of people and the people we are attracted to are usually imperfect. They have flaws, our friends can see those flaws, but to us, this person is your perfect soulmate. It's the same thing with records. So in the book, I deliberately wanted to choose records that would just serve to illustrate a point. This is the difference between novelty and familiarity. This is the difference between, oh, by the way, novelty and familiarity, meaning um, accepted musical norms. This is a classic form. This is an avant-garde form. I wanted the listener to read about this and then go to their own music libraries and assess their own music libraries in terms of these dimensions that I'm talking about. I knew writing it, I knew that my music industry friends were gonna say, born on the bayou? What <laughs> she thinking? Because <laughs> they probably never heard me say I was a Creedence Clearwater fan. What I like wasn't the point. I'm just trying to illustrate, here's how it sounds to me, your own music is gonna sound similar to you. So what is your love at first sight record? Oh, I've got so many of them. I mean, so many, that feeling when you hear something for the first time and you just kind of swoon and the thing you experience inside and biologists know about this, you experience wanting. Wanting is much more powerful than liking. Someone can show you something, you can taste something, you say, it's good. I like it. You can hear a record. Friend plays for you. You say, it's good. I like it. That's not going to send you out to buy it. What's going to make you buy it is when you feel, I need this. This is important to me. I must have it in my life. That means you're going to expend some time and energy to have it, to buy that thing or to, to, to make that for dinner or just get that record. So love at first listen is the experience of, of saying to yourself, oh, hell yeah. I want to listen to this for my life. I need this in my life. It's a mystery how it happens, but we all have those desires and like falling in love. You, you can't explain why. You just know, yeah, this record does it for me. In the book in chapter nine, where I and um, we gathered um, insight from some Berkeley students and some friends and family, asking them to describe their love at first listen record. There's 10 or so records described in there. Not a single one of them does anything to do anything for me. Not a single one of them does anything for me. But for these 10 individuals, the record sends them over the moon, uh, just over the moon. And as one, one uh, person said, if I knew a nuclear bomb was coming, I'd put that record on. <laughs> As a record maker, you don't get better than that. Everyone's <laughs> saying, I'd be okay if this was the last thing I ever heard in my life. No, I don't feel that when I hear that record at all. But my own Love at First Listen record was actually uh, done by a Berkeley student. The instant I heard it, I knew, oh, oh, this is the music of me. I must have this. I love that record so much. That's really exciting. I'm sure, does that student know that? Oh, yes. Okay. His name is Russell Lacey, and he lives in Virginia. And I wrote to him and I said, Russell, uh, I, want, I want to feature your song in, in this book. And he gave me permission. And 
So it's available. It, it wasn't even available. It was just sitting, you know, he, he hadn't released it or anything, but I loved it so much. And um, he gave me permission. So now it's on iTunes and Spotify. Oh, called, yay. Yeah, because you did. Angelina. Angelina. Oh, yes, you mentioned it, but I, I thought I, I read it as if it was a cover. No. Oh, no. Okay. The, the brilliant Russell Lacey wrote this song and student Ben Gibbert, Berkeley student Ben Gibbert was the producer and Ben uh, was married to another Berkeley student, Nina Fabi, and Nina uh, sang on this record. So it's quite a, a, it's all Berkeley students playing on it. It's a record I love among many, many records I love. Wow. I'll have to put it in the playlist. Um, okay, so I have one last question for you that's really just for me, and that is, would you consider Stevie Wonder worthy of a triple crown? Stevie Wonder is a national treasure. How many people have had that many hit records and kept their head on straight? A producer, my friend, Tony Berg, we were in the studio. I mentioned Tony a, a, a lot in the book because I learned so much from him. We were in the studio one day in a session and he, he said something I hadn't thought of before. He said, do you know that Stevie Wonder did something that was unprecedented in the music business? Stevie Wonder released five great albums in a row. Great is a big word. <laughs> but Stevie, I'm not getting the order right, but fulfilling this first finale, Talking Book, Inner Visions, Music of My Mind, Songs in the Key of Life, bam, 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 bam. No one does that because greatness is so hard to achieve. Stevie certainly wore the Triple Crown because Stevie was popular on the charts. The public loved Stevie. Other musicians, mad respect. And the critics extolled the greatness of Stevie Wonder. It's, it, wearing that Triple Crown is really hard to do. Uh, some artists, as I write in the book, can do it for one record. Prince wore the Triple Crown for one record. For those who are listening and don't know what that is, the Triple Crown is something we talk about in the music business. It refers to three different audiences for our records. The three audiences are all listening for a different thing. And the three audiences are the general public. They want, you know, fun little pop tune. There's the music critics and scholars. They want work that's going to advance the state of the art. And then there are other musicians. They're listening to be impressed, play something, write something, do something that impresses me. It's very hard to please all three of those audiences. That's what we mean when we say the triple crown. Thank you so much for speaking with me. My last real question, final question is where can listeners keep up with you? For right now, I'm not on any social media, but uh, I'm going to have to promote a book. So I think the best way is to go to thisiswhatitsoundslike.com. That's all one word. This is what it sounds like .com. And uh, they can join the record poll. So we have a page on the website for the book that uh, invites listeners to tell us about a record they love. I'm so eager for people to go to the website, join the record poll, tell us about a record that you love and turn us on to new music. But the one rule is you have to tell us why you like it. Don't just say, oh, it reminds me of last summer. No, tell us why this record made you fall in love with it. So we can fall in love with it too. And people can email me through, through that uh, website. Thank you so much, so much for speaking with me. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Everything will be linked in the show notes. 
This is what it sounds like. What the music you love says about you is out September 20th and a playlist featuring all the songs mentioned in the book will be available um, in the show notes as well and on the Feminist Book Club Spotify. Uh, so thank you so much for listening and thank you again for your time. Thank you, Alana. You're really, really good at this. And thank you. Uh, I wish you all, all the best of luck in all your endeavors. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature.